Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Heidi Hatch, anchor with KUTV. Dennis Romboy, political reporter for the Deseret News, and Ben Winslow, reporter with Fox 13 News. So glad to have you all with us today. This has been a huge week in politics, everything national, all things local, and we're going to hit it all today. So, so glad to have you with us. Uh, Heidi, um, we're all getting ready for November for the elections. 74 days away. Uh, see, some of us are counting. I that's... have a little paper chain every morning. I break it off. Yeah, that's not nerdy at all. I'm glad <laughs> to hear that you're doing that. <laughs> yeah. But so let's talk about a couple of those races that are coming up. I want to start with you on the fourth congressional race, uh, because this is one of maybe the race to watch in the state of Utah. Uh, ben McAdams. Burgess Owens essentially tied in the polls, but just this week, uh, the Cook Political Report changed this from a leans Democrat to a toss-up. Talk about why that's the case and why this is a little different than the last election. I think this is different because Burgess Owens is talking to voters, and I think that makes a big difference. In the last race, Mia Love was just absent. She didn't talk. We didn't see her, and I think she lost that election because she wasn't out there talking to voters. Burgess Owens, whether you love him or hate him, he's on Fox News. He gets free press from that. He's talking. And I think this should be a close race. When you lose by 700 points, you know that this should be a toss-up. And I think it's going to be about getting voters out. There's going to be a lot of national money in this race. But I think the fact that he's talking to voters is going to be a big help for him. Mm -hmm. uh, De Dennis, in this race, uh, Heidi brought up a couple of really interesting points there, too. Uh, uh, ben McAdams won that race by less than 700 votes. Uh, but there were some, some, some kind of factors going into that race, some tailwinds that helped him, like medical marijuana and other things. Uh, do we not have any of those that are going to help push him forward? Uh, and what does he really hang his hat on uh, in terms of policy or direction for this campaign? Yeah, I don't know that we have any of those kind of tailwind issues uh, this time around. I think he's going to try to put, you know, play on the fact that he he's a moderate. Um, you know, I, I've seen him uh, do events with Mike Lee. I've seen him do events with uh, Mitt Romney. They've been on the same page on a lot of these coronavirus issues and trying to get uh, some new stimulus money uh, out to the into the economy. I think those are the kind of things that uh, he can play on while trying to to distance himself from from the Pelosi regime. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Ben, uh, this is an interesting race because uh, not a lot of folks in Utah know Burgess Owens, uh, but he's polling very well, uh, maybe more on a national scene than he is locally. How does he really translate that into uh, some local issues in that fourth congressional district, which is always so amazingly competitive? It is a very competitive race. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because it is a get-out-the-vote effort. And you have the weirdness that is COVID-19 that is really sort of kneecapping everybody on this, uh, on any political mm -hmm. race right now. You have to campaign differently. You have to reach out more digitally. You have to reach out more on airwaves. You can't exactly go, you know, shake hands and kiss babies because, you know, that's like a really bad thing right now. And so um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how he can get out there and connect, as Heidi said, with voters. You know, do what you can to do this, but you can't hold these grand style rallies and things because the health department's going to shut you down. Mm -hmm. But he's an interesting hey, voice, especially with Black Lives Matter going on because he is uh, a voice in 
Utah that we don't have very often, and he's speaking out in a way that I think is getting to people on social media that mm -hmm. otherwise wouldn't have happened. It is true. I, Go ahead, I think Dennis. You're gonna see the, I think you're going to see the gloves come off in this race, too. Uh, just yesterday, there was a press release from McAdams' campaign you know, questioning Burgess Owens' ties to QAnon and, and his association with that. And so I think you're going to see a little uh, nastiness come through here in the, in the weeks leading up to the election. And let's not rule out the fact that you are going to start seeing PAC money start showing mm -hmm. up, just as we've seen, because this is really Utah's most competitive district. Yeah. And so we'll see whether the candidates want it or not, attack ads will be coming. Uh, uh, ben, do you see any of this happening in the first congressional district? That is the most boring race there is, probably, <laughs> because it's just, it is a very, very uh, one-sided district in terms of how it leans politically. The Democrat in this race uh, has an uphill battle. Uh, what we've had like what two congressmen in like uh, what were we saying like 40 years once yeah. you get the seat it's yours basically yeah. jim yeah. hansen rob bishop that's 40 years between the two of them i think they say it's the 13th most conservative district in the united states and so i don't think there's going to be much of a chance that it doesn't end up going republican mm -hmm. if so then we'll chalk it up to another whoa 2020. uh-huh yeah uh, dennis are you seeing anything else up in that district any issues that seem to be uh, catching fire with the voters none whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's so interesting yeah, to watch this it's, one. It's, it's, it's a pretty vanilla race, really, and I agree with Heidi. It's, it's going to go Republican like it has for the past 40 years. Okay, uh, let's, let's switch to the governor's race. I just want to take just a moment on this one because we talked about it even on this show. Heidi, a website has gone live this week. Draft John Huntsman. Really? Is, it, is that up? Even signs are up. Signs are up. You see it everywhere. I've heard people who've been getting this poll, and they actually had a poll that showed, I think it was about 55% of those who responded to the poll, which were, I think, about 25% of those who got the text responded, said they would uh, write in Huntsman. It's interesting because uh, we have these two movements. I've received phone calls from uh, both of them that have kind of joined forces right now. If you ask some people, they say behind the scenes, the Huntsmans are actually working alongside them. The Huntsmans are kind of dropping little hints online that maybe they're considering mm -hmm. it now. It's interesting because I think this is the first time that Utah has actually had an open race where you had these four and even before the four, six, seven, eight very qualified people running for this office. And I think the argument they're going to try to make is that there was no mandate here. While Spencer Cox did win fair and square, it was by a very close margin and likely that Republican will win as they have for decades now. And is it a good idea to have that candidate win that mm -hmm. only has about 33% of their own party backing them? Mm -hmm. Ben, what are you hearing about this? Well, will he, won't he, will he, won't he? Well, we're just gonna have to wait and see on August 31st if he actually does. This, if a write-in campaign is launched, this is going to be very expensive. You're going to have to spend a lot of your own money to get out there and convince voters to write in your name, spell it correctly, yeah. depending on who interprets the laws, and uh, you know, just to see if you can gain some traction there. You will also not have the support of the Utah Republican Party, which has made it clear where they stand that they're backing Spencer right. Cox. That could have political consequences down the road. Even if you got elected, will you have the support of the legislature? Will you have the support of the Republican Party? You know, there's a lot to factor in before you make that decision. And then there's also the complaints that this is, you know, you're a sore loser, that you're just upset you didn't win. Mm -hmm. These are great points. Dennis, is this why we're hearing from lots of people about this, but we're not hearing a word from John Huntsman himself? 
Well, I think he has a little bit of time to let this play out, right? The uh, deadline is, uh, was it August 31st, I believe, uh, if he wants to uh, file as a writing candidate. He can kind of watch what's happening over the next week and, and make that decision. But to me, it just seems difficult to get voters to do a write-in, to write someone's name in the ballot. Um, logistically, that just seems seems difficult, no matter how much effort and money and time he puts into the race. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting point about the particular race, because it's not like you can just draft John Huntsman. He has to make an affirmative effort. He has to actually file to be. You have to yeah. walk down in person and do it. And I think Chris Peterson, out of anyone who's probably cheering him along right now, because it's probably going to give him the best shot that he would have if he had them splitting the vote there. But yeah, I think a lot of people are watching it. And it is 2020, so we rule nothing out, right? Yep. <laughs> Absolutely right. There's nothing conventional about any of these races. Uh, and there's nothing conventional about the Democratic National Convention that we just finished. Uh, ben, give us some takeaways of this, because this is the first completely virtual online convention. And it was like nothing we've seen before, and it may be the future of political conventions, because there was a lot you could uh, more easily manage than with a packed arena. But what you saw was a clear contrast of what the Democrats want to paint as their vision of the future of uh, America. You know, you saw just clearly defined lines between them and Trump, and also a mandate of people need to get out and vote, people need to do what they can to vote, people need to stand up to President Trump and rebuke President Trump at the ballot box. There was a very clear message sent about get out the vote. That is absolutely true. What themes did you see? Well, first of all, I think it was slick. It was a nice Hollywood production where I think you could edit in what you wanted. You didn't have to see the things you didn't want. I was actually at the RNC and DNC last year, and it wasn't pretty behind the scenes. There was a lot of Bernie Sanders voters that were upset. And I guess when you're online this way, you show people what you want them to see, and I think that played well for them. Uh, one thing that I thought was awesome that I think a lot of people like they should keep around, the roll call was fun. Yeah. It was kind of see fun seeing little pieces of America go by in that video. I don't know that we did the best job of that. I wanted to see like a big orange arch behind Jenny Wilson or something, but it was fun watching that. The one thing I thought stood out was President Obama because he stepped away from the golden rule of presidents that you don't go after a sitting president. And I think that what they're trying to do is go for those voters that they can pull away from the Republican Party. Whether that sat well with them or not, I don't know, because it was... I don't know. It was it was tough talk when sometimes those people on the Republican side that could be swayed to the other side are sick of that nasty yeah. talk. Well, I want to get to your to the roll call thing that you mentioned too, but but <clears throat> on this theme of of really going after a former president. Uh, Dennis, this was an interesting point uh, because that's something that's usually not done is you, you know, the former president doesn't really spend a lot of time going after uh, the, the current president, the one that took their spot. But, but does this go into any kind of an overall theme or strategy of the Democratic Party for this election where maybe it's even as we heard uh, Joe Biden say, this is about character. This is a vote about character, maybe more than anything else. Sure. I, I think it was uh, smart. You know, President Obama had, had not really said much uh, leading up to the election. And this was kind of the uh, where he just let everything loose. And um, I think it would maybe have a unifying effect on the party that can be fractured sometimes. And uh, Trump is the target. And if they can unite behind that message going after him, um, you know, they have a good shot.
Yeah, but before we leave this, Ben, it almost seemed like some of this, at least to me, was this was the Democrats, the big tent Democratic Party. This is like all of us has time to co you know coalesce. All of us need to come together. It'll this be time. interesting to see if Democrats actually coalesce yeah. because you saw some divisions when Bernie Sanders was not the nominee. You saw that in 2016. You saw that again. You know, now, at least leading up to this, but coalescing seems to be the message is come together because we have someone that we want to defeat, we need to unite. That was the message that was being delivered from party leadership. You saw Bernie Sanders being placed front and center yeah. at the DNC to make that message known to his supporters, but it remains to be seen what's actually going to happen. Remember, Sanders won Utah. And then Biden is the nominee. You know, there's still even locally some delegates who feel like the party is not progressive enough for them. So will those voters show up or will they stay home? Yeah, these are the great questions we're asking. Can we talk about this roll call for just a moment? I know you wanted yes. Jenny Wilson in front of the arch, but she was in front of the Capitol. That was nice. <laughs> and building. actually, the it's one. It's a nice building, it, Heidi. It is a beautiful building. <laughs> you spending too much time there. And I think it is interesting that she talked about mail in voting because it is something that uh, Democrats really want to see and Republicans yeah. are against right now. And Utah largely has done an awesome job at mail in voting, although I can see the argument in some states that maybe it's not a great idea. We are doing a good job here, but Utah County. They messed it up at first, so it'll be interesting to see, but I think it was an interesting sell, and overall, I think the roll call was cool. Uh-huh. Talk about just for one more moment on that mail-in balloting, because it's interesting. That's what Jenny Wilson t chose to talk about uh, with, with her moment there, and this is a Democrat talking about mail-in balloting, which... Which is, I think, sort of what the Democrats want to talk about right now. And I guess it's it's interesting that it's turned into such an argument right now. So it was interesting that she chose that above all for what Utah wants to talk about. But I think it was a way for her to say, look, it's something Republicans and Democrats agree on in this state that it's working right now. And I think it does work for us. It's taken a couple years to get all the kinks out, but it is working. And I think that we have a higher voter turnout because of it, because you can vote at home in your pajamas. You don't actually have to get out to the poll. You don't have to worry if it's going to snow that day super easy to vote. Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, do you mind uh, giving us a preview? I know you're talking to lots of folks. The Republicans are meeting next. They've had a chance to watch the Democrats. You know, they get to really stage everything since it's all done virtually. What are you hearing uh, that we should be looking for as the convention starts? That's a good question. I, I, you know, I don't know that I know exactly what to, what to be looking for at this point. Um, it, when uh, with Trump at the top of the ticket, I, I think it still could be a wild card. I, I don't know what I don't know what to expect, to be honest. Yeah, we're all waiting to see because we haven't got much of a preview, have we, Ben? No, and we really don't know who's going to be speaking. You know what's going to be happening, and you know even at this point, I, have we really settled on where the president will be uh -huh. when he gives his speech? Well, that that was kind of my point, and that's why I think Dennis is saying exactly what many of us are thinking about right now. Is you know it used to be in some of the old days when you did it a traditional way, we'd have some sense of the speakers. You know, we, there's be this big build up all the way to the end of this thing, and then the balloons drop, and we feel great about what happened in both of them. But that's not happening this time. No, I think this is going to be the complete opposite of the DNC, where everything was taped, it was controlled. This is going to be out of control. Not, I can't say if it's a good out of control or a bad out of control until we see it, but we're actually going to have six delegates from each state who actually show up on Monday, so there will be a live presence from some of the delegates. Uh, we do know we're going to hear from the First Lady live uh, from the White House, the President likely again live from the White House, and that's what he likes. He likes to 
not have a teleprompter. He likes to be live and see what comes out of his mouth. It happens to me sometimes too. But <laughs> I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of that next week, where we're gonna be waiting to see what happens next. Okay. Uh, well, that kind of makes it must see TV, right? It's easy to, to <laughs> we'll tune all out. We'll be tuning in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because because we don't know what to expect. Yeah, maybe the strategy's working. Uh, let's, let's get into some strategy here for a moment, too, as we get into this special session that just happened. Ben? The most special of sessions. <laughs> number six turns out to be the most special. They're not as special when you get to number six, right? Yeah, maybe loses something. But a lot of stuff happened there. Ben, you were up there the whole time. Oh, I know. my gosh, yes. So, so let's, <laughs> I, there are a couple pieces I just feel like we have to get into. One, for example, is who called it? Because this is the big question. Will the legislature call it? Will the governor call it? Who did? The legislature called this one, uh, usually they work really well with the governor to kind of decide who's going to do that. What we discovered is, of course, voters, y'all passed this that allows the legislature to call itself into special session. Uh, they do that for emergency situations, financial things, but there's a financial threshold. If you're going to spend over a certain amount, you need the governor involved and the governor has to do it. Uh, the legislature did this time because it didn't really meet that. But, you know, there were a lot of things that they had to consider. There was, you know, uh, still more COVID-19 relief. There was yeah. election issues, and then they had a few other bills in there, too. Yeah, that is true. Uh, I want to get to a couple of those bills, but Dennis, one of the key points right here was whether or not to extend the emergency declaration uh, mm -hmm. because it expired, all right? And there was some serious dialogue. I'm curious what you all are hearing in the back rooms about this, too. What's the big deal about the the national about the declaration of an emergency because it was about to expire and the legislature did not have the votes to extend it? Well, right, and you, as you know, the, the legislature gave itself that power to weigh in or, or take control of some of these emergency declarations and not just let the governor uh, declare them on his own. Uh, so th there has been some tension there between that, but as we've seen, the governor did extend that, and part of it is to be able to uh, access federal emergency funds, which the state still needs to get through the pandemic. Yes, so Heidi, this is an interesting point because uh, even the Speaker of the House said, well, an emergency declaration, you know, usually that's something that's short period of time. That's a fire, that's an earthquake. This is pretty long, you know, and sh it's sh who should have that power? And I think that's what makes them nervous is that maybe it's there's no end in sight to it. And so by not renewing it, I think maybe some of the legislators were looking at it and thinking, okay, maybe there's a hope that we won't always have a mask mandate or that we can renew it. But the governor, like he said, you know, has millions of dollars at stake here that could be tied under this umbrella. So I think he felt like he needed to do it. And I think a lot of those conservative uh, legislators who are going home from their districts wanted to say, I I said no to it uh -huh. because but I think there are people who are wanting to pull back a little bit from some of the mandates. And the legislature did say no to it, which forced the governor to do the uh, issue of just a brand new emergency declaration. Mm -hmm. And the fact is he may have to do this every 30 days uh -huh. as long as this goes on if this power struggle continues with uh, the legislature. Legislative leadership was very clear. They were not a fan of extending this, but we would be the only state in the nation without an emergency declaration mm -hmm. on COVID. It does impact all of that money, hundreds of millions of dollars. Now the legislature quibbles on that and says, does it really, you know, would we still get that yeah. money? And that's certainly something that, you know, could be explored remains to be seen. The governor insisted that it would, which is why he did it. But we may be doing this 
like this yeah. Groundhog Day thing, like we've been living throughout 2020, we may be doing this every 30 days. Yeah. So, so how do we make these two points, uh, Ben and Dennis? Because I think it's right. You say the legislature, they say, well, we, we don't feel comfortable extending, or we're not going to, or we don't have the votes. But within you know moments or hours, the governor automatically does it. It almost seemed like there was, we're not going to give it to you, but we understand you're going to, and that's why we're okay with not extending it. Yeah, they kind of wash their hands of it and let him do it. So there's different ways of looking at it. Salt Lake County's mayor also put in basically the mask mandate and the emergency order through the beginning of next year till January. And I know Amy Winder Newton was saying, I'd prefer to look at it every 30 days. So is it Groundhog Day where we have to yeah. look at it every 30 days or do you just put a blanket statement out and we can pull it back if we don't need it anymore? But. I, I, there's two different ways to look at it, but yeah. I, I think, guess we're covered now. I think we're not done with this on a legislative level. I think that this is something that's going to simmer um, yeah. for months. And in the general session, you will probably see a concerted look at the lengths of the governor's powers. To be quite frank, the laws really weren't designed for a state of emergency that's lasted as long as this has. The right. legislature has a point when they say this was designed for the earthquake, the microburst winds, the mm -hmm. you know fires, the floods, that kind of thing. Yes, the law does say epidemic, as the governor has pointed out, but did we really envision we'd be entering yeah. month six of an emergency? But no one really envisioned this, and you know this is. 2020 yeah. weirdness all over again. Yeah. That, is, that is, is so true. And I think we are going to follow that one uh, very closely. We'll see how that power struggle, if it's even that, or if it's really just a coordinated power struggle. A coordinated <laughs> bow out. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, so uh, something there seemed to be some agreement on, Dennis, too, is there was a lot of talk. Maybe most of the talk was about voting uh, and how we're going to be voting in November. Will you give us a couple of points that came up in this special session about voting? Well, yeah, I, there was an effort to actually extend, which which didn't uh, come to pass, was the extend the uh, the mail-in ballot by a week so you could get your ballot a week early, and that, that didn't pass. But the in-person voting, to some degree, will be restored um, from, you know, that was not used during the primary election. So that, that gives people an option to, uh, it's, traditionally, people a lot of people like to go to the ballot box, and that gives them that option again. Yeah, so they're able to do it in person now. But but this is an interesting bit of intrigue, I thought, from this, too. There was a provision there that would, in the, in the interest of health and this national emergency, there was this provision that said the lieutenant governor uh, could suspend in-person voting. They got rid of that. Yes, yeah. they did. That was... Okay, conspiracy. That made, no, that made people <laughs> uncomfortable. The idea that the that a, a member of the executive branch had that much power and that it could be potentially abused. That was some concerns from some lawmakers. Others said that the executive branch just also wasn't comfortable being handed that kind of power. The bill itself, though, di they did remove that, but they also allowed for other options. If a county clerk does feel uncomfortable, like we can't have people yeah. gathering in the high school gymnasium to vote, they will be allowed to do drive-through voting, which is kind of a fun thing. I, I've been out at some of these, and it's, it's neat to see but you basically drive in one way, you can register to vote on the same day, or you can fill out your ballot and hand it to a worker and then drive on out. Um, and th they did allow for every county in the state to now adopt that. Uh, Salt Lake and Davis County uh, played with that a little mm -hmm. bit in the primary, found it worked pretty well, and then uh, they gave the option to other counties. Utah's a little bit of a weird state when it comes to this stuff. We tend to do things that uh, do expand a lot of voter options for getting your ballot in. There will also be more ballot boxes particularly yeah. in rural areas of the state, for people who may have concerns about the Postal Service. The Postal Service did say, we don't expect it'll affect you, Utah, all these issues we've been having. But 
just to be safe, lawmakers yeah. clearly put in some of these other avenues. Yeah, Heidi, they definitely expanded those options. And, yeah. to, and to Ben's point and what Dennis was saying also, they even you know gave authority and sort of a requirement to these clerks to work with the post office to make sure that they are all marked when you get them, uh, because this is a little different than the primary. It is a little different from the primary, and I think what people need to be ready for when we get to actual election day is that we may not have answers or winners in some of these races, maybe even the presidential election if more states go in mail-in. But I think it's exciting having options. Hopefully more people will show up. And I do know there's some confusion. Utah County had confusion in the last election where a lot of people had their ballots in hand, then thought they had to wait in line and right. do it. So I think the important thing is for all of us to get the message out that there are those Dropbox options in the mailbox. The Dropbox is my favorite. I just like to see it go in the box and have it there and not have <laughs> the, the delay of the post office. But people can also track their ballots online once they get them in. So I like that there's a lot of options. Hopefully those who feel like they like to show up and get their sticker and be there on the actual election day yeah. will be inspired by that option as well. I wonder with what the president's been saying about the post office and you know the possibility for fraud. If you have a core of people here that are Trump supporters that, that won't mail in their ballots and then they, they want to go in and drop them off in person just because they distrust the post office based on what's being said nationally. Yeah, that's a really good point because that is being said that maybe we can't trust the post office. Hmm. Very interesting. Yes. Okay. Uh, one last one last thing before we close. I, I want to start talking about some of the issues surrounding masks uh, this week because one, De Dennis, let's just start with you on this. Is the state is saying they're allocating this five masks and a face and two face shields for every teacher in the state of Utah. Uh, but there's still a lot of discontent even as the schools are starting to go back to, uh, back in person in some places. Yeah, I don't know how long five face masks and a face shield last. You know, I mean. You use them, you lose them. That doesn't seem like really sufficient for protection for teachers and forcing them to have to pay out of their own pocket if, if they if they can't uh, make do with what they're given. Uh -huh. uh, this mask issue, Ben, I find it interesting. So there's there's a, a law about K through 12. If you're not wearing your mask. It's potentially a misdemeanor. I think that's a little overblown in the uh -huh. fact that when the default in Utah law, when there is no specific punishment assigned to anything, and a health order is technically a law, um, that the default is a Class B misdemeanor. It's not likely to be enforced. You may get a talking to from the principal about wearing your mask because it is the law, you know. But I don't know how much it's going to actually be enforced. But they're doing it because not necessarily because kids are are the ones likely to get sick. But they're the little super spreaders. They go out into the community mm -hmm. and that they could do that. That's what the state epidemiologist told the interim education committee. And it sounds to me from the start of school that most kids generally are wearing the mask. I think the question that might come down the road is uh, how many of them want to keep it after a couple months or three months. And I think a lot of it will have to do with peer pressure of, you know, is somebody else bringing a note from their doctor or from home that says they don't need to wear yeah. it? And when one starts to not wear it, will others? So I think. Early on, it's going to be a novelty. Kids will be wearing it. How quickly will that wear off? And do we yeah. have to look at this again and say, okay, now what? That's what we're going to have to see. That's going to have to be the last word. So thoughtful tonight. Thank you for this. These are very important issues. Very well done. Appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.